that, that in some ways grounds me to earth, you could say, but also draws me up to heaven, is I try to tell stories, especially stories of the saints. Because, boy, these are folks, some more prone, you know, focused on the intellect, some on one-on-one -on -one acts of love, some on the burning desire, you know, to, to proselytize the whole world. So I think it's in those saint stories, so many of them, across so many lands, across so many worlds, we can see people who are, I'm sort of like that person. What can I learn from you? Damascus, the show where encounter meets mission. My name is Dan Dimite. I am the executive director and one of the founders here at Damascus, and I am really excited for our show today. We're going to be talking about humble strength and how we can be men and women of humility and how that doesn't make us weak, but that it actually makes us strong. And we're going to be having a conversation here in a little bit with uh, Dr. Kevin Vost, who is a, uh, an author and a speaker in the Catholic Church, is just uh, producing incredible content for the Catholic faith and really getting the Word of God out among us. If this is your first time joining us uh, here uh, beyond Damascus, we are hungry to share the witness and the testimony of what happens after we encounter Jesus, right? We, we, we know about St. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, that life-changing encounter, but it wouldn't be very inspiring if, you know, Paul encountered Jesus and then went home and watched Netflix for the rest of his life. Instead, that encounter with Jesus animated and transformed his life so that he became the missionary and the apostle to the nations. And when we encounter Jesus, the real question is, what do we do after that Damascus moment? Are we becoming the missionaries, the apostles, the evangelists that the Holy Spirit wants to make us? And a lot of times we don't know what to do or how to do it. And today the Lord wants to inspire us with an incredible teacher of the faith to teach us a little bit more how through humility to allow the Lord to strengthen us to become witnesses to become missionaries and martyrs, to become saints and evangelists that the church is desperate for. So I'm excited to join on our show today, Dr. Kevin Voss. Hey, doctor, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks so much for it's, having me on today. Yeah, it's great to have you. All right, so before we start and dive into your story, we're just going to start in prayer. So let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good and gracious God, we love you and we adore you. We worship you and we praise you. We're so grateful, Lord, that you want to fill us with virtue and fill us with grace to animate us to build your church. Lord, we pray that you would put us on our knees in prayer, that you would allow us to be men and women who cry out to you for conversion, who cry out to you for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be animated in our lives. We pray that you would bless this show right now, Lord. Just come and be on Kevin and I's tongues on our lips so we can proclaim your goodness. And we pray for all of our listeners today, Lord, that you would fulfill their every desire and strengthen them for the fight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
Awesome, Kevin. So uh, you currently, uh, you were sharing with me, you are retired from a pretty impressive career. And now you're basically just pouring out all this uh, content and wisdom on the church through books and preaching and speaking. So why don't you share just a little bit uh, about who you are and what you're doing, kind of where you were in your career and now in retirement, what you're doing to bless and build the church. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I just have to make a comment too. I love your Beyond Damascus theme. Just a real story from this year. One of the Catholic books I've written was one on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And a priest in our diocese asked me to put together some videos just this year for young confirmandis and their sponsors and their parents to give them a little bit deeper understanding on each one of the gifts. And we decided we're going to start each gift with a story about a particular saint that kind of really embodied that gift. So for that first one of uh, fear of the Lord or wonder and awe, I chose St. Paul himself, you know, uh, and told oh, of his Damascus warrior. experience. There you go. There you go. In fact, he was also, he was the person I chose for my confirmation name back when I was young and didn't, didn't know much, but thought, oh, I did make a good choice without realizing how good that <laughs> choice was. But a funny thing too, I remember this, I was driving to the church that day, listening to you know, a CD right before I pulled the door, a pop CD song came on called Suddenly I See. I thought, that's pretty appropriate. <laughs> Paul suddenly saw through some new eyes there. But yeah, in my own case, you know, to make a over 61 year long story very short in just a few minutes. Yeah, I was a person who was raised Catholic, went to Catholic grade school, great Dominican sisters, a Catholic high school, Viatorian brothers uh, and priests. We went to church every Sunday, you know, went to mass. Um, but we didn't really talk about Christ at home. We didn't talk about the faith. I remember in high school for religion class, I had to do uh, a paper involving use of the Bible. We didn't have one at home, so we had to go to our local Marion Center Catholic Bookstore and pick up a Bible. But I was raised in the faith, always interested in things like, uh, well, when I came a little older, became interested in things like psychology, which later became my career as a psychologist, and also philosophy. In my late teens, I read some of the wrong kinds of philosophers and became an atheist. I became convinced that the idea of God is self-contradictory or unnecessary. And I spent 25 years in that state from about the age of 18 to 43, considering myself an atheist, though I went uh, through my, my schooling, got a doctorate in clinical psychology, got married actually within the Catholic Church for the sake of my Irish Catholic mother. We had two boys, sent them to Catholic schools because I knew all the good, the good that was there. But sadly, I couldn't really uh, believe in God until a series yeah. of events in my early 40s led me to read St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time. And I later yeah, found out, out trouble. That, oh, that does. That does. Yeah, when you say, open up Thomas Aquinas and you have questions, you're going to get answers. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. They say a little atheism, I mean, a little philosophy leads to atheism, but the right kind of philosophy, a little bit of St. Thomas Aquinas, that atheism is going to go out the door. And that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what happened to me. And I found out, too, that one of our great popes, Leo XIII, in the 1870s, he wrote in an encyclical. The people who said, I'm only going to follow reason and not faith, he said, what's going to bring them back to Christ is the stirring of the Holy Spirit and the writings of the great church fathers and the scholastics and St. Thomas Aquinas foremost. And that's exactly what happened to me. So, so thank, praise be God. I was able to regain my faith in 2004, come right back in. And then and I realized too, when I came in, all the, the secular learning I'd done before that, my specialty in, in psychology, my specialty within psychology of memory, Thomas Aquinas himself is one of the key figures in the history of memory improvement techniques. And I, and I became very interested. I was always interested in things like physical fitness and weightlifting. I came back into the church and realized what beautiful teachings we have 
on body and soul that we're integrated, that we're going to have glorified bodies in heaven. That St. Thomas says, you know, when we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're even told to love our own bodies. So all this secular learning that I had, I saw this could be put into service of the church. So starting in 2004, I wrote my first book, uh, Catholic book, Memorize the Faith and, and Humble Strength uh, that we're going to talk about today. I think that I'm losing track. It's either 23 or, or 24. So 23 or 24 books. Yes, that's right. There's a yes, few so more you're trying to compete pipeline. with Thomas Aquinas. You're like, well, he wrote more than any human being could ever write. And yet I'm going to try to trump him. Right. <laughs> yeah. Except Thomas probably didn't make it till the age 50. So oh, okay. yeah, I've so got a huge advantage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I will say there are, there are times when I look at my own books that I've written and try to calculate if I have yet in all my books put together, if I've written as many words as he did simply in the Summa Theologica. Yeah. yeah, no, you probably haven't. Probably. Yet. <laughs> I don't think I'm quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard one time that, uh, if you were to compile all of his works together, um, it would be impossible for one man to write that much in their lifetime and in, in, in the lifetime that he had. And that, that even the amount of content he produced was miraculous. Uh, and, and that he would walk around the chapel and he would, uh, actually like, be dictating two or three books at the same time and have scribes writing. He would write. I mean, I mean, he would speak and they would write and then he would speak to another scribe. I mean, it's just, it's just wild. <laughs> it is, it is miraculous. It is, you know, he had a, obviously God gave him a powerful intellect, but then Thomas said he learned more from prayer than he did from study. So God gave him special graces. Yeah. Said that he, he, he when he dictated, it was like a torrent. And yes, there'd be multiple yeah. people taking the dictation and it's believed he did a lot of his dictation. He wasn't even looking at books. He did a lot of this from memory. He would go around and read these church fathers and place them in his memory in a very, very organized system in a very, very powerful mind. So, yeah, so Thomas himself is, is almost, is almost. I've heard that his summa has been called uh, a gift of the Holy Spirit you can hold in your hands. The, the, Thomas Aquinas himself, the one he wrote, is almost in its own way a proof of the existence of God. It is such a marvelous yeah. Absolutely. All right. I got to dive back into your pre-conversion moments because this is just oh. insane. So how was that like growing, like sending your kids to a Catholic school? And it sounds like uh, were you and your wife, like, were you behind the, their Catholic formation um, or was there a lot of tension there between you and your wife? Like, was there was she engaged in the faith or what, what was that like? Yeah, those are great questions, because my wife, uh, when we met, she wasn't even Catholic. But, but she did convert to the church before we had a formal RCIA here, but we had meetings with the priest. She became a Catholic, partly again, in some ways to please my mother. But the time that I was away from the church, I was never one of these atheists that spoke out against. I, I wished I could believe. I just thought in all honesty, I couldn't. Uh, and I would tell people, you know, for many years, I could never attack the Catholic church because growing up in it, I knew there was so much good there. I said, in my mind, they just got one little thing wrong, which was the existence of God. Of course, later I realized you know, I was the one very wrong about the biggest thing of all things, right? So, so basically that way, though, yeah, the kids went to Catholic school, and my thought at that time was I had such a good experience there. I thought I'd rather have them indoctrinated by the church than by other sources, you know? And I was one of those people who thought then when, they get, when they're old enough, I'll let them decide. So I never proselytized. I never tried to rob them of their faith. And, and I will say, you know, maybe through God's grace, even all these years I was away, uh, I did have a respect for natural reason and philosophy, including some very good philosophers like, like Aristotle, who Thomas borrowed from so much, and also the Stoic philosophers. Some of them had a, a natural uh, belief in God. So in some ways, my reason was never far from God. I just 
these arguments of the atheists just, just kind of rob me of that ability to take the leap of faith. And if I give it to you real briefly, the two, two of the main arguments were, one, and you'll see this in the books of the modern atheists, the idea of God is self-contradictory. How can he be all-powerful and all-knowing? If he knows what he's going to do tomorrow, then he doesn't have the power to do something different. You know, so you can't have them both, things like that. A second argument uh, came from people like these objectivist philosophers. And they said the, max, the axiom is existence exists. Open your eyes, there's the universe around you. That's your starting point. It doesn't make sense to ask where that came from. It's just there. And arguments like these and others were like, boy, you know, I was raised Catholic, but I've never come across the answers of this, or I've never been taught this, or if I was, I wasn't paying attention. So I just thought, boy, I, I hate to admit it, but I can't honestly believe in God until that 25 years later, also a time which I learned that my brother, my mother, other family and friends were praying that I would that I would come back to Christ. It always gets you. It, does, it, does, it may you know. take 25 years, but it always works. <laughs> that's right. And that's what I'll tell some people. All my son and my children have been away for so long. Well, you know, have faith. Have faith and patience. You know, God has an unusual timetable for some of us. But then, but again, you know, then when I came back uh, through a series of events, I'm reading St. Thomas, and I'm realizing, boy, all these arguments were answered just beautifully well over 700 years ago. Thomas borrowing from church fathers and doctors and philosophers who lived long before him. So these answers to the atheists were there within my faith the whole time, you know, and I, and I didn't really have a clue. But if I can give one example to you, like this idea that it's, God is self-contradictory. In, in talking about God's eternity, then also about his power and his knowledge, Thomas just gives a beautiful a little analogy here. He said, if you're walking along a hilly road, you're not going to be able to know exactly who's in front of you and who's behind you. So, but someone who sees that journey from a point high above, they see it all. They see everyone on the road, before and after. They see the final destination. He said, that God perceives things from the eternal now. You and I have a yesterday and a tomorrow, you know, and a today and a tomorrow. But God is not just some bigger version of us. He is the, the eternal now. He is pure act. He's not limited by time. So I read this and I think, ah, how beautiful, how, how wonderful. It never occurred to me. I never heard that, but it makes such such beautiful sense. So anyway, when I came back to Thomas, you know, being trained as a psychologist, when he talks about human nature, I'm like, Thomas has got this down better than Freud, better than the behaviors, <laughs> better than anybody I've read. Shocking. Yeah. Then he has the glorious, you know, the wonderful little five proofs, but then he goes in great depth on God's attributes. What's it mean to say that God is simple? You know, to say that God uh, is is love, you know, in all the different aspects of God, to say that he's all powerful, he's all knowing, that he's eternal, that he's infinite. And I read all that and it's mind boggling and it's beautiful and it makes perfect sense. Mm, that's amazing. So was there a an aha moment or was it just like kind of this as you're reading months go by and it's just slowly like, wow, lights going off the whole time. Or was there one moment where you're like, whoa, this is, this is it. Yeah. I think it was briefly, it was a period of kind of a matter of weeks. And I remember that the sequence, I used to watch these courses from the, the teaching company or, or listen to them. And, and a Catholic priest did one on Aristotle's ethics. I really enjoyed that. So I bought another course he did on natural law. This was in DVD and I was watching it. And he's got all my favorite people. There's Aristotle, there's the Stoics, there's the Greek tragedy writers. And then he moves into St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. 
thought, boy, you know, these were really great defenders of what it is to be a human being, human dignity, human nature. I'm like, where's the great atheists, you know, doing all this? They really weren't there. But then that's what led me to read uh, one person, Mortimer Adler, who was a 20th century philosopher and psychologist, a great books exponent, who, who later became a Catholic at the end of his life in his 90s. But he wrote a book called How to Think About God. So I got that out. I read it before, but I reread it. But anyway, that led me then to read St. Thomas directly for the first time in my early 40s. Then at one point, I can't pinpoint an exact date, but I remember at one point just having that aha, that Damascus type moment thinking, like, oh my God, everything I was taught, it is true. It is real. It makes sense. Christ is real. I can embrace him again. I can come back to the church. I can go to confession. I can be a true part of the community again. So, so it was amazing. I just remember that was in the fall of the year uh, 2004. So it's been, it's been quite a while ago now. Yeah. That's awesome, Kevin. So if you're going to give the props to the Holy Spirit there, right? What was the Holy Spirit's <laughs> activity or how was he at work in that process of conversion for you, right? Oh, and, and even how would Thomas Aquinas <laughs> talk about the Holy Spirit's activity in a conversion like that? Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know, and when saying that people are calling the Summa a gift of the Holy Spirit itself, yes, the Holy Spirit's working through Thomas. Thomas is his instrument. Thomas is now reaching out to all kinds of people. You know, including me. So I'm getting the, the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's also guiding me to Thomas as a, as a well, it was a worldly counselor. Now he's he's a saint in heaven. But but yeah, it is just amazing. The Holy Spirit working on multiple dimensions, working on me, you know, working on my mother and brother and whoever was praying for me. So it's definitely a spiritual thing. It's not like I raised myself back up to God through my own bootstraps. God was there waiting, you know, to, to lift me the whole time if I if I would accept his his help and grace. Yeah. I think that's so neat because it is, it's the, the, even the, the ability for you to go from, if you will, a darkened mindset of atheism to the light of truth and, and to, mm -hmm. to, to move from darkness into the light of truth is by its very self, a grace and the Holy that's Spirit's right. activity in that process. And in a very human activity of reading and studying and learning that that human activity is transformed through grace to lead to conversion, which is, is pretty significant. Have you seen that conversion happen in people's lives through your writings and your teaching? Well, you know, thank, praise be to God I have. You know, a few people have, yeah. have told me they've been moved by particular books. I did a book kind of telling my story uh, from atheism to Catholicism. You know, some years ago, some people comment on that. I've also met a few people uh, after giving live talks that have told me that their story paralleled mine even even. Thomas Aquinas drew them back too. So, that, so that's always a special thing for me, you know, because many people who leave the faith, there's many different reasons, you know. It's not all these abstract philosophical things like, like, like that drew me, it's other things. It's emotional traumas, you know, various uh, compulsions, addictions that draw people uh, away. So different things too will draw people back. But to me, it has been just one of the wonderful things the way God, you know, uses even sinners, even people who are atheists for 25 years and use them to help other people come back to the church too. And I will say, while I was an atheist, up to that last month or so, I never would have believed it'd be possible that, that uh, God has used me in that way. Wow, that's amazing. If uh, After you have this Damascus moment, right, this this conversion in your life, uh, I'm intrigued. What, what were the conversations like with your kids and your wife? Yeah, with them, it, it was just kind of a just a very common thing. I know the, the, the boys were kind of surprised. Again, I never proselytized, but hearing me talk about all these Greeks and everything, I think they, they, they probably thought I worshipped uh, Zeus and Apollo. 
humans opposed <laughs> to God. So they were a bit of a surprise. You know, they, they were happy that I could then join them at church and then actively participate. I remember at one point with one of their the younger boys' confirmation class, I got to be involved and, and do just a little bit of, well, it wasn't my teaching. I'm reading prepared materials, but at least to be involved in there. So, so that was a very happy thing. I remember just a very, very happy thing with my wife. Probably, you know, um, let me see. Uh, that year. Yeah, my mother had already passed away. My father was still alive. You know, my brother, the rest of my family are still there. And my brother's saying, well, mom's happy up in heaven. You know, because I even remember the years I was away. I never brought this stuff up to her because I didn't want to upset her. But when somehow it came out, I didn't believe. She's like, nah, no, nah, no, nah, that's not right. That's not right. You know, there's a God there. Well, and even at that time, I thought, no, nah, I don't believe so. She was right in the long run. You know, God did reveal his truth to me again. I was finally willing to accept that. Again. <clears throat> that's awesome. I love that. So the um, it sounds like if I'm if I'm keeping track of timing properly, did you say you had your conversion in 2004 and you wrote your first book in 2004? That is correct. <laughs> that, well, is right. that is right. That is right. And I think that is at the heart, Kevin, of of this podcast. Right, that encounter should lead to mission, right? That there wasn't this like, hey, I encountered Jesus and my heart was set on fire with him. And then I sat for, you know, another 10 years before I started to share the gospel. And unfortunately, you see this a lot in Christianity where people have an, an encounter moment, a, a conversion moment, and they stay on the sideline for for far too long, assuming that that encounter wasn't meant for the sake of immediate mission, right? Like, oh, well, I've got to now prepare myself or I need to get holy enough or I need to get like, how did, like what was happening? Because it just seems like this is like uh, a, a, a outpouring of grace on your life that you went through a conversion and then you immediately went into, hey, I'm going to go help with my son's confirmation class. I'm going to start writing a book mm -hmm. and sharing the mm -hmm. truth of the gospel. Like what, what was going on through your heart during that time? Yeah. Oh, and I, I should say something too that kind of led up to this. Um, you know, I read a Stoic philosophers, and I read a line from the philosopher Seneca. It, it is okay. translated to say, "The the busy man is least busy with living," meaning you're doing too much. You need to have time to reflect. The ancient Greeks said, "Know know yourself, know thyself." And later, I remember that Jesus said, "You know, told Martha not to be worried about too many things." You know, there's that one thing to focus on. So I had that time frame in my life where I thought, well, you know, I'm working full time. I got my doctorate when I was working and my kids were young. I'm teaching on the side. I thought, I'm going to stop teaching for a little while, take more time and reflect. And then that's what gave me this time, this reflection, this openness to the Holy Spirit to move back to the church. Uh, so I took that fall semester off teaching, I remember. And yeah, I remember by December, it was like a few days before Christmas, I did the first book proposal to a Catholic publisher. They didn't know me from you know, the man on the moon, but thought, I'm going to try it. I had this idea. I knew that Thomas was a great memory master and my whole specialty area in psychology was memory. I did my master's thesis on memory strategy use for adolescents, you know, both going by the scientific studies, how it's useful for them and academics. My uh, doctoral degree was on an Alzheimer's disease. And I did some memory training with people, not with Alzheimer's, but certain kinds of brain damage. So anyway, yeah, yeah. I almost like jumped in right from the start because yeah, even right after your conversion in some way or another, God's preparing you, you know, even before that moment. So like I said, the secular learning I had was building up, building up. So by the time I came to the church, it's like, boom, I'm, I'm a torrent, you know, uh, and I want to share, especially <laughs> yeah, exactly. what I learned from Thomas. You know. So I did the book on memory. I did another one on, on physical fitness because all, all through my life, I've been involved in bodybuilding and weightlifting and all this. And, and in fact, it was a famous bodybuilder in the late 70s 
who also wrote about atheism that first led me away from the church. But I wanted them to share that. I wanted to share about the virtues because they tied into my psychological training. So I did that. So yeah, so some things I did right from the start. Now, also from the start, I thought, boy, I'd like to write a book that's like a simple introduction to the Summa Theologica. Now, there, there are some wonderful books already out there. But I thought, I'm going to do a brand new one, make it really short and sweet. Uh, but I remember at that time, I realized I don't really understand it well enough to do that uh, in 2004, 2005. But then in 2014, I finally did come out with a book like that. So, so certain things I was ready to do from the start, God had prepared me. Other things, you know, we develop within the faith after our conversion. So, so God has all kinds of things in store for us. Maybe some right from the start and, and all kinds of other things up into our last days here on earth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm a huge fan of the process before. So I've written three books um, and um, I feel like writing is a call, right? That there's, you even, you even have the gospel writers and you have um, yes. the, the, the written word of God, that there's, there's an, a, a prophetic activity that goes into this process of father, what are you saying? And how can I share this with the church? Right. And a prophet receives the word of God and then he shares the word of God. And there's multiple ways of doing that, right? I can, I can do that through the spoken word, um, but I can also do that through the written word. And I think there's mm -hmm. something about that written word to receive a message from the father and then to say, I want to give this message to the church. What, what's the process for you when you, when you go to write a book? What, what is that process where the, um, from start to finish where the father says, okay, this is what I want you to focus on. And then to the process of writing and developing. I, yeah, I love that I question. Because dog in the background. That, right? that's, that, Lil, that's Lily. She does appear in some of my books. When I give <laughs> describe the way that our, our senses, our senses work and our internal senses through St. Thomas, we arrive at this little white puppy that that's her. And, and sorry, <laughs> that was her mailman or someone dropped something off. Of the <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, but the process itself, you know, most of my books, uh, you know, I, I suggest this idea to the publisher. Uh, but occasionally a publisher will ask me to write about a topic. So again, there's that Holy Spirit, you know, maybe influencing me, influencing something else to reach out to me. So that so that's a wonderful experience. But I know for, for most of the books, one thing, when I do come across a topic, I really get a burning desire, you know, to write about. I realize at some point early on, I'm like, well, how, how come I hadn't thought of this idea long ago? You know, but something new comes and it just seems like, so of course, you know, but, but God, you know, in some ways, maybe he was preparing that. I also read a line in a book when I was writing a biography of St. Albert the Great, who was Thomas Aquinas's uh, mentor, you know, one of his great teachers. And it said that, you know, um, in an author's first book, you can find the seeds of all the books that come after that. And I have found that that, that definitely was the case for me. Uh, my funny. first book, yeah, Memorize the Faith. It's kind of like a memory tour, uh, just a very simple look, you know, at things like from the Ten Commandments to the Seven Deadly Sins, Seven Gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Four Last Things, all these things. And later, I did end up writing complete books about those little chapters. So they were the seeds, and they came out later. But yeah, but you know, my main my main process there, you know, discerning this, trying to to get the call for for what I am to write about, and you know. Then, you know, having been doing this for a few years now, thinking of which publisher would seem to be the best match, the kind of audience they're trying to reach. And is this a more academic type tone, spiritual growth, you know, lives of the saints. So thankfully, we're graced with a variety of Catholic publishers that some of them have the kind of specialty niches. So I'll try to find the right yeah. match there. And then when I write, um, well, one of the great joys for me, <laughs> I think most writers would probably really enjoy reading too, right? 
because yes. I think what I'm doing, you know, I'm not sure if I gave you a whole lot of original material. I'm mostly trying to to pass on the great wisdom of people who came before me, you know, kind of put it in some modern language, maybe have a slightly new twist on it. So then, you know, I'm collecting all my resources and just sucking them in and taking notes. And early on, I like to start to lay out that table of contents. And if the book's more elaborate, there may be certain parts and how that's all coordinated. So, so I just love the way it develops. And then, then my own, you know, with my own lifestyle things, I, I've always been an early riser. So I just do most of my actual first draft writing uh, in the morning. I, I get up early, do reading and prayer, go to the gym, eat breakfast, and then for a few hours, I'll write. And yeah. usually in three to four months, I've got a new, a new first draft. That's awesome. I love that. I, I actually, it's funny because the um, resource driven content, when you said you want to unpack the the greats of the past, sometimes I'm even a little different where I I avoid, if, if the Lord puts a message on my heart, sometimes I avoid other thoughts on it because I, I, I almost don't want to be, I want to make sure that any revelation comes from the Lord in prayer. And, uh, and there's two different ways to approach that, right? That I'm going to dive into the content of someone like Thomas Aquinas and unpack it for a person, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. I'm going to go in and allow the Lord through prayer to unpack a message and, 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 the, and the both and right. That we would, yes. we would go into the greats of the past and we'd bring in fresh revelation of, of, of almost kind of that whole idea that the, the Lord has the logos, you know, the eternal word of yes. God, that truth yes. that is unchanging. And then the Ramos word that, that, private revelation word of, of what is God speaking now and the to go into that process with the Lord of how do I take this greatness from the past and mix it with the what you're revealing to me in the present and and the, and it's got to be I see almost um, a burning fire in you Kevin that I think is really interesting because I, I think a lot of times especially in uh, the um, the charismatic strands of the church. Like I'm kind of, uh, I, I'm surrounded by a lot of passionate on fire charismatics. And I think sometimes we can, um, we can run the risk of saying like, okay, it's not about the intellectual pursuit. Right. And it's not about the textbooks and the, and, and even sometimes I'm like, uh, discrediting the value of textbooks because I work with young people and statistically and across the board, uh, I can see over and over and over again in, in young person evangelization, the youth are, uh, they're not getting the, 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 the religion class is not working as a primary means of evangelization. However, the intellectual life of the church is a critical means for evangelization and a critical way to awaken faith and to lead a believer into a greater conversion. And I think what happens is when intellectual uh, intellectualism or the intellectual pursuit of the faith is divorced from uh, the spiritual life, that's when it becomes fruitless. And what, you know, I just noted, you said you wake up every morning and, and you're, you're taking time to pray that the, the spiritual life is what animates the intellectual life and the intellectual life animates the spiritual life. And you can just tell in your personhood, you're a man who's on fire for the gospel, that you love Jesus Christ and you love his truth. How, how like someone who's, producing um content for the church how do you keep that fire burning inside of you to love the, the truth so much yeah boy i love the way you've laid all that out it is also true about the, the, the necessary for the intellect but also that burning love of the, of the will you know and sometimes you know the holy spirit called love himself you know the father uh, generates the son the word 
you know, the intellect in operation, the Holy Spirit, their, their love spirates the Holy Spirit. So we need it all. God has called us to, you know, to, to know and to love. And in some ways, you know, the more we know love uh, God, the more we're going to love him. We, we have to have both. But we also have our different temperaments. And yeah, if I'm going to go get unbalanced, I'm going to be all living in this world of abstractions and be fascinated with these concepts and their interrelationships. But hey, but wait a minute. And Thomas says, theology in some sense is primarily speculative, seeking the truth about God. But he says, secondarily, in an extremely important sense to us, it is practical because the goal is to get us to the point where we are actually going to see God in his essence to, for our salvation, to see that we uh, arrive there in heaven. So I would just say, you know, my own writing, when if I'm writing about, especially, you know, kind of an abstract philosophical theological topics, but I always want to give the reader, well, how does this apply to my real life? How does this make me a better, more loving person? In what practical ways can I love God? I have found for myself, one way that, that in some ways grounds me to earth, you could say, but also draws me up to heaven, is I try to tell stories, especially stories of the saints. Because boy, these are folks, some more prone, you know, focused on the intellect, some on one-on-one -on -one acts of love, some on the burning desire, you know, to, to proselytize the whole world. So I think it's in those saint stories, so many of them, across so many lands, across so many worlds, we can see people who are, hey, I'm sort of like that person. What can I learn from them? We see people, that, that personality is very, very different from mine. But there's something I can learn that, that maybe can bring out an element in me that needs to grow. So anyway, I just say the one thing that helps my fire, too, is the fact that, that God has given us this, this wonderful uh, community of saints, you know, that we can all learn from and be inspired from and, and pray, too, for their mediation. Yeah. Amen. I love that. Yeah. I think that there's something about uh, theology that should lead us to deeper worship. And if, if, as we're studying theology, mm -hmm. we, we don't fall on our knees and worship the God of whom we study, we're, we're missing out on the mystery of theology. And I remember like, it just, I, I, I was, a the, uh, did theology for my master's and my undergrad and studied philosophy in my undergrad. And I remember there's times where like, I would be assigned like a ton of reading. Right. And on the one hand, like we did in philosophy and in theology in my undergrad, we had daily, uh, 10 question test <laughs> and, and because the teacher wanted to see if you did your reading assignment. And so they are very easy, usually easy questions just to see, did you do the, the reading? Mm -hmm. If you did the reading, you know the answer, but sometimes I'd be reading the assignment and I would just want to sit there and like, because it was so good. And I'm like going into a time of worship of like, what was written is so rich, but they gave us 30 pages. It's like, no, but I'm on page three and I don't want to move <laughs> from here. But then I'm like, well, then I'm going to fail my test tomorrow. And, and I, that, but I, think there's that element of like the theologian becomes a worshiper right and the worshiper becomes a theologian that as I, as i seek the lord and worship i want to know him more and as i know him more i want to worship him more how have you fallen deeper in love as you like for me the reason i write is because i just i just love the process of writing where i'm by myself crying out to the lord and i'm actually making incarnate the words he's placing on my heart. I love mm -hmm. that process mm -hmm. of writing talks where I'm researching and I'm developing because I'm, I'm diving into the heart of God in the secret place for hours sometimes just to develop the content that I'm going to share. It's that, it's that process of labor 
before the birth that is the greatest process. Like uh, I just, I'm falling deeper in love with God. And it's like, I want to write, I want to, I want to give talks because I want the fruit that comes from that process. Cause I find the greatest prayer in those moments. What's it like for you in that time of, of research, study and prayer to lead to the delivery of the word? Yeah, it's funny. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, right now, I happen to be in the middle of a course I'm teaching online on the spiritual wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas for the Avila Institute. <laughs> and uh, tomorrow night, one of our main topics is going to be uh, Thomas's writing on the Trinity. And I was thinking what I might tell him tomorrow, that I realized this process went through me as I reread uh, his questions and articles on the Trinity. So it was kind of three stages of wonder I, I, I saw in myself. The first is I'm rereading this, some of this so abstract and deep, saying, I wonder what Thomas is getting at. As I read more deeply, it starts to make sense. I just find it a wonder that Thomas was able to write all this, all these nuanced points to, to, to show where they come from in scripture, the church fathers is like, that, that, that's a wonder. But, but why did he even do all this? Well, there's the wonder with a capital W. When I'm reading here, Thomas describing the beautiful, the, I mean, the utter mystery of the Trinity to the greatest extent that we can understand it, which we'll never fully understand. It. But there, that, that generates that wonder for the God that he's writing about. Uh, and, and that's what I try to, to hopefully capture through my writing. You know, we're going to talk about concrete things, concrete situations, concrete people. But hopefully everything we write about is going to draw us up to God. You know, as we move from the creatures to the creator, you know, embracing that sense of wonder and awe and that love for God that, that, that he's given us everything, our very existence and all that we are and all the happiness, hopefully that we will attain uh, one day with him in heaven. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Just that encouragement that when we encounter him too, it just should spirate into mission that uh, my love for him is just producing fruit. Why don't we talk about just the, your new book, humble strength, the eye opening benefits of humility. Um, uh, what, what is, uh, what, what, what kind of inspired this uh, book and why did you dive into this topic? Well, I have to say, this is one where a publisher uh, essentially asked me to consider it. And I have to say that when I first told my wife that she kind of chuckled and I think she thought that they thought that the research would do me some good. <laughs> and she was, she was <laughs> right. She was right uh, in that. But actually, over the years, you know, I'd written on virtues, the intellectual virtues, the moral and cardinal virtues, the theological virtues, and, and knew that humility was an essential virtue and that Thomas himself had, had addressed it in some, some depth. So I thought, yes. Uh, yeah. Cause I had considered actually years ago writing a book that I, but I didn't do uh, on humility until, until recently. So that was it. I had a call to do it. And then of course, you know, just, just with my own background, my own particular knowledge base in the church where my first thoughts goes to, to St. Thomas. So of course I, I do read some of the modern, there's some wonderful modern books out there and some classics because I wanted to be ground Grounded in that subject matter because I'm obviously was no expert in that myself. So did my background reading, you know, did, did the prayer, asked God for some humility in writing this book. And then too, this, this book in particular, uh, it took some humility, had a lot of guidance from the publisher because they had a particular idea in mind they wanted to get across. So we had to kind of meld my, my more formal style of writing with that to the heart kind of writing they were looking for. Uh, so it was, a, it was a wonderful and, and even kind of a humbling process for myself to go through the drafts and try to, to try to uh, reshape this. But, but I was so happy to do it. You know, as I saw that, you know, the great theologians have said that you know, humility is in a sense, the foundation of all the virtues. If we don't have humility, you know, if we're, if we're drugged, dragged down by pride, 
then none of the other virtues are going to flower within us. So I could see the importance of this virtue to, to be able to tell others about it and the need to grow in it uh, myself. So, so I was very yeah. happy to take on uh, this project. Yeah, someone who's new to this virtue, how would you describe, like, what is humility? Sure. And one thing with humility, uh, and they actually asked me to address this, too. You know, there's secular notions of humility. Uh, modern psychologists have written books talking about the virtue of humility. I even came across a, a recent business book called Humility in the New Smart, where they're recognizing that in this rapidly changing world of constantly new computer programs and apps and so forth, if you rest on your laurels and think you're wise and you already know what you need to know, you're, you're going to fail. So there's this intellectual humility, uh, the willingness to learn from others, to grow, to recognize the need for that. That's important because even in our secular lives, even in our, yeah. uh, in our work lives, but there's that misconception out there. Many people think that humility is equates like with low self-esteem. You're going to think poorly about yourself. You're going to be uh, sad. You're not going to try to achieve much. I wonder if the psychologist said, no, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a, a loser or a shrinking violet. That, that's not the idea. So, so what really is humility? Well, Ascension, when they, they produced the cover for the book, A Humble Strength, they had some wonderful options, and I love the one they went with. It shows this acorn in the foreground, and then you see the shadow in the background of this massive oak tree. Well, some people think that humility means we're going to stay like this little thing, like this acorn. But no, humility is that virtue that, in which we recognize how lowly we are. We come from the earth, the hummus, from a, a Latin word meaning the ground or the soil, which has the, you know, some roots of humility. But humility wake, wakes us up to how lowly we are, but to the fact that God showers us with his graces and he wants us to grow and develop. So it is through unlocking humility that we allow that tree to grow, that tree of the, uh, of the virtues, that, that full use uh, of God's graces. So, so one way I describe humility too is, you know, it's not, of course, it's not thinking just poorly of ourselves, but it's knowing ourselves as we truly are in our weaknesses and also in our strengths, in our potential strengths, in what we can do with God's uh, graces. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I always say humility is <clears throat> knowing the truth of who we are. And, uh, and the truth of who we are, you know, I get all of my great wisdom from um, classic Notre Dame football. And uh, there's that movie about Rudy uh, and his life. And the priest comes in the chapel and he says to Rudy, he's like, you know, in all of my years of, a, uh, of the priesthood and the pursuit of God, I've, I've discovered two great truths. There is a God and I'm not him. <laughs> and, and, and I think like that's the knowing the truth of who we are. There is a God, right? Uh, and it took you years to discover that, Kevin. Thank you, Jesus, that you discovered <laughs> that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. uh, but uh, and, and that we're not him. And, and to some extent, that uh, the, that that realization puts us on our knees. That when we know the attributes of God, as you spoke of, and we know just the the uh, omnipotence and the 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 power of God and the glory of God, it, it, it strikes in us that that virtue. Uh, I mean, that gift of the Holy Spirit that you spoke of earlier, fear of the Lord and wonder of all, where we're on our knees just worshiping this Almighty God that you are God and I'm not, and that other that otherness, the difference that between me and God, right? And then. I would say that priest and Rudy had one thing lacking, but that that God wants to divinize us, right? That there's this incredible mm -hmm. truth that even though there is a God and I'm not him, he's made his home me, that I'm his temple. And that because of that, I have great 
humility and this profound knowledge that I am not God and that he is so much bigger than me. But as you were speaking of, but there's a power and a potential that's in me because he lives in me. Could you speak maybe the, the, that tension between these two great uh, virtues, humility and magnanimity, and how those two, how they go hand in hand? Sure. And I will say, too, your Rudy quote there reminds me of one from St. Catherine of Siena, you know, in one of her dialogues. She's God speaking to her in a mystical vision. And at one point he says, you know, you are she who is not. Basically, I am he who is, you know, echoing yeah. Exodus where Moses asked his name. I am the great I am, yeah. you know. But, but even so, that like, was, that it, was God's first uh, mic drop moment, right? Like, <laughs> who right. are you? I am. Bam. That's right. That's <laughs> drop right. the mic. That's everything. Yeah. I have this t-shirt I wear sometimes with Popeye the Sailor Man. And one of his famous sayings is, I am what I am. So yeah, we all are what we are. Only God can simply say, I am. <laughs> being itself. But yeah, but he's being itself with the capital B, the source of all of being. But the point you made, but he's calling out this little St. Catherine the 23rd or 24th child, illiterate until adulthood, he's calling out to her to do great things. And he's calling out to you and me and all the people who are hearing us to do great things that, that are appropriate for our lives, for our life situations, for our particular talents uh, and powers. So, so yeah, the um, Thomas points out, St. Thomas, you know, that magnanimity, the virtue that literally means, you know, from magnus from the Latin is great and anima, uh, is for soul, so greatness of soul. He said they, they don't oppose each other, as some people might, might have thought. Like uh, the pagan Aristotle wrote a lot about greatness of soul, magnanimity, megalosuke, as he called it. And he's talking about the great man, you know, walks slowly and thinks about these noble things. And it might give you the impression that magnanimity means you're haughty. You're not going to waste your time worrying about the masses, but, but, but not at all. You know, Thomas is pointing out that, that humility, knowing ourselves as we are, recognizes we are from the earth, we're nothing on our own. The very fact that we exist comes entirely from God, who among us gave ourselves our own existence, you know, or can sustain it. So on our own, we're just that soil. We're just that hummus of the earth. But God himself has called us into existence, and he wants us to join him in heaven. And he gives us natural capacities as human beings. He gives us an intellect and will, unlike any of the other millions of species of creatures uh, on earth. And he also is willing to shower us with his graces, the faith, hope, love, the gifts of the Holy Spirit if we accept those. So in a sense, they work together beautifully. Humility reminds us of how little we are on our own. And magnanimity reminds us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So we need both of those. We need to be aware of our inherent weaknesses and of God's unlimited power and to try to train ourselves in accepting his graces, cooperating with him so we can become what, what he has in mind for us. Yeah. Amen. I love that. Maybe you could speak a little practical on how you experience humility and magnanimity that it, as a balance in your own ministry life, right? Because I think sometimes we um, we discredit God when we almost uh, act too humble, right? We're like, we're like, oh well, if God wants this to happen, it will happen. And it's almost like, well, we're just like, like of course God wants people to to know his name and to give glory to him and and of course he wants the 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 world to have a conversion and so like suppose your books you you write these books i'm sure um you recognize that you're not god and yet there's something inside of you that desires the content that has writ been written in these books 
to reach as many people as possible and to make as big of an impact as possible. So like in, in your own writing, how do you, or your own ministry, how do you balance this humility of knowing like, okay, whatever God wants is going to happen through my ministry and, and he's, he gets all the glory, but I also really want something great to happen for God through my ministry. Yeah, absolutely. Does question make sense? Oh, I think so. If I understand it right, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> One of the first thoughts that comes to my mind is the, the parable of the, the uh, uh, master of the talents in Matthew 25, you know, where God gives uh, the, the masters gives one servant, you know, one talent, which is actually a vast sum of money to, to care for. Another, he gives two talents and another, he gives 10. And it says it's according to their individual abilities. And of course, the master then comes back after he's away. The man who had five talents had turned it into 10. The man who had two had turned it into four. But the man who had one, he hadn't turned it into two. He, he buried it under the ground. So, so Thomas tells us what that, and the, the master was very displeased with that third servant, though he was very happy with the other two. And we can be sure he would have been just as pleased with that third servant if he had increased what he'd given instead of uh, burying it in the ground. So Thomas says that that, uh, burying it into the ground, you might say, well, he was humble. He didn't think he had the capacity, so he wanted to keep it safe for God. You might say, well, that man actually showed humility. Why is God punishing him? And Thomas says, no, he showed pusillanimity, which means smallness of soul, which means mm. not trying to make the most of the graces God gave you. Sure, he may not have given him as many talents and ability as the other two, but he did give him some of his own. He's given every one of us some kind of talent of our own. Like in my own case, uh, it, my dad was like this wonderful handyman. He could fix virtually anything. He worked as a plaster. He could fix cars. I can't fix a darn. Uh, I think I know how to hammer a nail. That's about it. But but I do have some fair measure of, uh, of talent for, for writing. So that's my call. That's my call to try to do what I can uh, with that, you know, asking for God's help. And yeah, so so is it an affront to humility just to think, hey, I can write books? But I hope not because I feel like God has asked me to do that. I feel like more like it's recognizing that to strive for a greatness of soul, to get the great word out there. But in keeping things in balance, I will say too, yes, I, I do write these books, but my own particular books, I, I couldn't write them if the spirit wasn't stirring me. And if I wasn't in most of my books, passing on so much of what came from others before me. Yeah. I think the parable of talents is a great uh, example there. Cause it's, it's almost, I'm going to invest my gifts as best as I can. And it's up to the Lord on how, how well the what what the return is the the return on my investment so when i take the gifts that god has given me and i invest them with a hundred percent of my strength and i bring in others to help me invest those gifts with a hundred percent of their strength it's mm. up to the lord to to produce the measure uh, uh the return on investment right and for some you know it, it always blows my mind it humbles me that you know, sometimes the return on investment in my life is uh, a twofold return. And for others, it's like a tenfold return. And I'm like, oh, man, like, okay, that person has a podcast. It's reaching this many people, right? And it's like, that would be really nice. But that's not up to me. Like, if the Lord wants, it's, it's up to the Lord to decide what is the return on investment. It's up to me to make a full-hearted investment with the best the best I can bring smallness of soul. I, 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 I can't repeat what you said. That virtue is called who so it's, it's even hard for me to say pusillanimity yeah. coming from the Latin pusillus meaning small. It just means smallness <laughs> of soul. Yeah. I'll call that the, the, I'll just say platypus, right? It there you go. The platypus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That platypus thing you were talking about. Uh, but the, the, uh, that smallness of soul. So you're suggesting that's a danger. 
it's, it would be a danger for us not to invest the gifts that God has given and not to put forth the best we can put. Do you think there's disciples of Jesus through this smallness of soul um, that aren't putting forth their best effort, even though um, they're following the Lord? Yes, I think so. You know, we may follow, you know, we, we follow God and have some sense that oh, I, we may not fully understand our, ourselves, even our own potentials until, until we've tried them. So we may think we're following God's will by kind of minding our own business and not trying to dare great things. Uh, but if we did dare things, maybe something moves us to, to reach out. It, it might make a difference. And I'll tell you, this can be take place in the very smallest of ways. Let me get, give one example here. Years ago, I was asked to write a book on, on loneliness, which is like a worldwide uh, epidemic. And it was years ago, I wrote the book before the pandemic and all the restrictions and lockdowns and everything. It was recognized as a, about a third of people at any one time will say they're very, very lonely. Uh, and for some of these people, it can be so important for someone, especially if, not, if you're a church, if you're a Catholic person, to reach out to them, at least to, to make eye contact, to smile at them, to say something to them. Maybe if the situation is right, to invite them to, to go do something. But it's possible some of us, through kind of a distorted sense of humility, would say, who am I to do that? Who, why are they going to care if I ask them? They're, it's like, who, you know, who are you? They're, I might be rejected, you know. But, but if we're truly embracing humility, we can say, well, I want to reach out to that person. And even if they do ignore or reject me, well, that's okay. Because I have their, their welfare in mind, not how they might or might not react to me. So that is one thing that I recommend even to help alleviate loneliness is don't have this false humility that nobody's going to care. You might act out, hey, they, maybe they won't care, but maybe they will. You know, and, and I think God calls us to try to reach out, to show the spirit of Christ and recognize Christ in others, even if we, we might feel like we're humiliated uh, after giving it a try. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. If um, that kind of it, it makes me wonder, then if I want to grow in humility, what a what are proactive ways to grow in this virtue? Yeah, and at the, at the end of the book, we did, we kind of set up the book like it is a, sort of like an instruction manual to grow in humility. Here are the parts you need. And the, Thomas talks about virtues having parts. Here's your warnings. We talked about the sins and the relationship with sins. And step-by-step -step instructions, we talked about St. Anselm's, the St. Benedictine steps. Picture of the perfect model of humility, your end product. Well, there's Jesus Christ, you know, who called us to be, to be humble and lowly uh, like him. But we ended with what we call a little maintenance manual. It's like 50 almost off the top of the head things I came up with. That, that kind of reflect the earlier lessons of the book, how we can try to grow in humility in the simplest acts of our life. Intellectual humility. Let's say somebody asks you a question. Maybe you've been considered an expert on this. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know, if you don't. you know. So don't pretend to know things that you don't know. On the simple level, show friendliness to everyone. Simple affability, a smile. Showing you're not so self-wrapped, you don't recognize uh, their uh, existence. And I'll say one of the hardest ones, my model here is uh, St. Martin de Porres, who was so good at this, said, even if a person would insult you or, or injure you or injure your reputation in some way, try to pray for them and maybe even go out of your way to do some kind act for them. You know, therefore, that's a hard thing, but, but training yourself again. I can accept rejection. Uh, I'm still called to love my neighbor. So if you can reach out and do that, you're, you're growing in humility there. I love that. You mentioned the St. Martin, and I wonder, were there other saints as you were studying that you were just like, wow, this is a beautiful example of humility? And and sometimes I read some of the uh, early saints, right, who were like 
mutilating their faces or yeah. <laughs> mutilating their yeah. bodies yeah. Uh, as a sign of humility. How could you also speak into that? Like great saints that did it really well. And maybe some of the, the saints that were trying to practice humility in the past that maybe didn't hit the mark on what the modern call or, or our, our understanding of the, the dignity of the human person and how, yeah, I, how we it, balance those two. Exactly. You know, and one of the first examples, I think of the wonderful saint, St. Rose of Lima. I've written a, a chapter in one book about her beautiful, beautiful saint, but she was known to be just so beautiful that it said that she tried to kind of mar her own beauty so the men wouldn't be drawn to her shoot so she could focus on God. And a few years back, anthropologists tried to reconstruct what she looked like from her skull and made this very, very beautiful model there. But, you know, but she's living in the, the early 1500s in different cultural times. I think a great example for modern people today, and one that I include in the book, is uh, the young man, Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati from Italy, you know, the early 1900s. And here's a guy, if anybody had a reason not to be humble, it's him. <laughs> he came from a super wealthy, influential family. His father was ambassador to Germany. He ran this La Stampa, the greatest newspaper in Italy, which is still going today. He was physically powerful uh, and handsome. And yet he spent so much of his young life reaching out to the poor, reaching out to the sick. And there's tons of beautiful stories about him told by his sister and others. But one that really reached out to me is this. It said when he went to like a party or some kind of a, a group and there was time to socialize, he would kind of look around for a person who seemed isolated or down, lonely by themselves. He said and he would zoom in on them. And he's going to converse with them and not just like showing them pity. He's going to try to get them to laugh. He's going to treat them as an actual person. So to me, I think that's a wonderful model for young people today. Learn all you can about Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati from Italy, yeah. a lay third that's, Dominican. That's beautiful. I mean, and that's exactly what Jesus does, right? It's a, it, mm. it blows my mind. Like he's like, okay, I'm going to hang out with the least of these. Like I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to find the lowest of the low and I'm going to, um, and I'm going to associate with them. And I, I think the, I, I like to challenge myself at parties too. Like, am, am I doing that? And mm -hmm. it's actually really hard in ministry world because, you know, like you may be in an event and you're like, oh, wow, if I hang out with this person, you know, they're, they're esteemed and they actually have financial resources. And if I build a relationship with them, those financial resources may be given to our ministry so that we can actually advance the, the ministry. And, and I realized for a while uh, early when I was trying to grow our apostolate, I, I was, I would go to events and I would try to associate with the, the upper escalon. Right. And mm -hmm. I was like, this isn't, mm -hmm. this isn't what Jesus did. And this isn't how he grew his ministry. He would look for the lowly, right. And, uh, who, who's sitting by themselves and, and, and who is, who's, who doesn't belong here. Right. And really, and that doesn't mean uh, at the same time, it's like, uh, those who are in esteem often or in higher places, they're often amazing, fantastic people who in oh, humility yes. we can learn an incredible amount from. So it's that, but it's just a matter of having that balance that I find that sometimes in ministry, we end up using people for our own ministry benefit. And we have to be very careful not to do that, but to stay humble of heart that the Lord is the provider. You said something funny that you, about uh, blessed Pierre that you said, if, um, if anyone had a reason not to be humble because he was wealthy and because he was attractive and because he was of good health and all of that. Um, but to some extent, uh, those things, that should be every reason to be humble as well, right? To recognize like, oh my gosh, like I have abundant blood. Like I did nothing to earn. Like he did nothing. I always say it's like, it blows my mind that I was born 
in America, the most prosperous nation in the world. And in America, I was born to a Catholic family, the, the, the fullness of truth. And in a Catholic family, I was blessed to be able to sent, be sent to a Catholic school. And in the midst of a Catholic school where so many of my friends left the faith, I was blessed to have a moment where I encountered Jesus. And in that moment of encounter with Jesus, I was blessed to then have a, an experience of the charismatic move of God to discover the fullness of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then, like the percentage of the amount of people who have been able to experience the fullness of the power of God through the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit it, in such an incredible way that like that is such a tiny, tiny, minute group of people in this process of what I've contributed to my own life of faith is nothing, right? Like the Lord has just poured out all of these gifts. And to some extent, when we discover the gifts he's poured out, that in and of itself is this opportunity to fall to our knees and say, I've done so very little. I've done so very little in this equation of the life of grace I'm living today. That's very beautiful, Dan. And yes, for Pierre Giorgio, that yeah, from a secular perspective, he had no reason to be humble. From a perspective yeah. of vainglory, if he's going to say, hey, I did this all myself. But instead, in the saints, no matter how graced and gifted they are, Thomas with his fabulous intellect, you know, other saints who are wealthy, St. Augustine's others, St. John Chrysostom, the golden mouth, and remarkably eloquent. But that gave in them, it didn't arise vainglory or pride, but a deep, deep sense of gratitude to God and mission to spread the, the wonderful, loving graces of God towards others using those talents he blessed them with. Amen. I love that. I love that. Okay. Um, we should wrap up. I actually could continue this conversation for a long time, but um, the if you were to say kind of the one nugget from the research on humility that you uh, you did and you wrote about what's what's the one thing that you want every reader every listener to know Ooh, that's a good one uh, you know saint augustine who thomas so often borrows from said that the whole of christianity you know, is, is virtually wrapped up in humility humility is almost the whole of christian teaching and there i think he's borrowing from where when christ tells us to be like him he calls us to be gentle and lowly in heart like him to take up his yoke and then he's going to give us rest so humility will help us rest in God. It will give us freedom. It will, be, will allow us to be free to, to, to use our talents without worrying about the, the repercussions. Yeah, I love that. That's so beautiful. I actually just heard a preacher this past week. He was saying, you know, in the, this in this world that's so filled with anxiety right now, Jesus gave us the answer to find rest. And he said, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And I will give you rest and that, that we're called to learn from him. He is the master of humility. He in his life and his lifestyle is the way in which we learn this beautiful virtue and to find that virtue, that gift, that grace in the life of Jesus. And so maybe if you're hungry to learn more about humility, I'd encourage you to check out Dr. Kevin Vos's book. Um, it's called Humble Strength, the the secret benefits, is it? The secret benefits the of humility? eye-opening benefits of humility. The eye-opening, thank you. Sorry about that. And uh, and then also check out the Gospels. And Jesus says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and I will give you rest. And so look at the Gospel and read the Gospel from cover to cover and learn from Jesus. Because when we learn from him, we see the perfect image of humility. And to do these two studies side by side and allow that to bless you. Uh, Kevin, where can our listeners 
find out more about you? Where can they find your books, your resources, and continue to, to dive into the depths of knowledge? Sure. My own website's drvost.com, just drvost.com. I don't keep it all up to date, but there's a comment box on the bottom. If people would like to contact me with a question, I'll, I'll respond to that. This particular book, Humble Strength, is from Ascension Press. So you can find it through Ascension. And all my books uh, are available on some of the major internet sellers if you want to go there to find them or perhaps ask your Catholic bookstore if they can get one uh, It's of interest to you. Awesome. That's so good. Thank you so much. And uh, would you mind closing us in a prayer? I'd be happy to do that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Lord, without end, amen. Amen. In the name Father, of the Father, and the Son, Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Beyond Damascus, the show where encounter meets mission. I was inspired during this show to fall deeper on my knees and to cry out to the God of providence, of provision, and of abundance. I was inspired to continue to learn more about my faith and to allow that knowledge of my faith to lead me into a deeper worship of God. And I was inspired by Kevin's testimony of how immediately when he encountered the Lord, he laced up his boots and he went on mission for the Lord. And I think that's really important for all of us listening today, that the Lord, if, if you've experienced the grace of conversion on your life, the Lord is calling you in humility to go into the mission field. And we'll be praying for you as you do that. And we're happy to accompany you as you go on the mission to help equip you for the work of mission. Thank you so much. I pray that you uh, are very blessed and that your family is filled with grace.